Well, tonight we have come to the closing section of our study in Jude's letter. This is not the last message because it's going to take two weeks, I believe, to cover these last two verses. But it is the closing section of Jude's little letter. It's been a wonderful journey as the Lord has allowed us to go through this letter and learn so many, so many important truths about false teachers. For example, we have learned from Jude that these false teachers are dangerous. And I hope that you have seen that. They're dangerous because they come into Bible-believing churches posing as true believers with the goal of trying to lure people away from Christ and into error. That's how Jude started this letter when he said in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. And he tells them why. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. They've crept in to churches. They distort the grace of God. They are not true believers. They are not genuine believers. They are pretenders. They are deceivers. They claim to be Christians, but in reality, they are ungodly men who distort, as he goes on to say in verse 4, they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. They teach their followers you can live any way you want to live, regardless of what Scripture says. So they are dangerous. We've also learned from Jude some of the ungodly character qualities of false teachers. He tells us, for example, In verse 11, it's sort of summed up by comparing them to certain men in ancient times, what they're like. He said, for example, says in verse 11, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. That means that they are characterized by rejecting God's way of salvation, just as Cain did. They sort of invent their own way of salvation, their own religious system, just like Cain did, rejecting the blood sacrifice. He also goes on to say they exploit people financially. In verse 11, he says, and for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. Balaam was that prophet, that Gentile soothsayer in the Old Testament who um, wanted to curse Israel for money. He also tells us that in addition, not only do they exploit people financially because they're greedy, they're self-centered, but they also rebel against divine authority. The end of verse 11, we read, and they perished and perished in the rebellion of Korah. They are like Korah who rose up in rebellion against Moses and divine authority. So they don't submit to God. They don't submit to the authority God has over them. And, And throughout this letter, Jude has told us other things that are truths about these men and their character qualities. Judas also made it very clear that false teachers are going to face certain judgment. Throughout this letter, he's made it abundantly clear that they're not going to get away with their wickedness. For example, he speaks in in verses 5, 6, and 7 about Old Testament creatures like angels and and then uh, humans who God did judge. He speaks in verse 5, 
about those people in Egypt, the Jewish people in Egypt, that God dealt with them in judgment. In in verse 6, he speaks about angels who God dealt with in judgment. In verse 7, about the wicked citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. He also speaks of the horror that awaits them in judgment. In the end of verse 13, notice he says, For whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And in verses 14 and 15, Jude tells us that even in the ancient days of Enoch, at the beginning of human history, God made a statement through Enoch promising that he was going to come to earth personally and execute judgment upon all these ungodly individuals. Look at verses 14 and 15. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so throughout this letter, we have been instructed by Jude about how really wicked and spiritually dangerous these false teachers are because they desire to gain a following by targeting Christians and others who attend uh, churches to embrace their heresies. But after spending the bulk of his letter telling us about the dangers of false teachers, Jude, as we've noted in the last few weeks, we've noted this, that Jude devotes the last part of his letter to telling us as believers how to protect ourselves, how to make sure that we are protected so that we can resist these false teachers. He tells us that there are two responsibilities we have, two spiritual disciplines we need to put into practice. Number one, he tells us that we need to remember God's word. In verse 17, he tells us that, that through the apostles, God predicted that false teachers would arrive. He said, remember that. Remember the word of God, which was spoken to you through the apostles about false teachers. They will arrive. So don't be shocked by this. Don't be shaken. God said it would happen. Secondly, he tells us that we are to keep ourselves very conscious of God's love for us. That is to say, we are to always be mindful of God's love for us in Christ. You'll never be moved from the gospel if you remember the love of God expressed in the truth of the atonement of Christ on the cross. But not only, he doesn't leave it there. Last week we saw not only does he tell us that we have a personal responsibility to resist false teachers, but Jude tells us we have a responsibility to help others, to evangelistically help others who are in danger of embracing the errors of false teachers. Notice the last words of instruction found in verses 22 and 23, and have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. He tells us here about three types of individuals that we are to evangelistically reach out to. First of all, when he says in verse 22, have mercy on some who are doubting. These are folks who may be Christians, but maybe not. But they're having doubts about biblical Christianity. They're wavering. They don't know if it's really true. Snatch them. Try to help them. Be gentle with them. Be merciful with them. Don't be harsh with them. But do reach out to these people in a very sensitive and compelling Way In verse 23, he goes on to say, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Those folks you have to be a little more aggressive with because they, it would appear, have already left the church and have embraced false 
teaching. Those you got to snatch out of the fire. Those you don't, you're not tactful with. Those you have to be blunt and tell them that if you don't repent, you're really in danger of continuing on this road. You're going to go to hell. So you have to be firm with them. And then the third group is the most difficult. And, and some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Those you reach out to, but you're very cautious because those are people who could even be leaders and uh, perhaps even teaching in a false religious system. And you've got to be careful that you don't get burnt yourself as you reach out to them with the gospel. So when all is said and done, based on what Jude has revealed in his letter about false teaching and false teachers, we would have to conclude that we as believers live dangerous lives. It is dangerous because we are always susceptible to being led astray by error. Here's how one Bible teacher summed up the dangers that Jude has warned us about. He says, it is a dangerous thing to live for Christ in an atmosphere of false teaching and seductive morals. It is a hazardous thing to try to rescue men for the gospel out of such an environment. If you get too near the fire, it will burn you. If you get too near the garment stained by the flesh, it will defile you. Is withdrawal the answer? He writes, no. Advance against the forces of evil. Face the dangers involved. Now, as you'll recall, Jude began his letter by telling us that we are to advance against the forces of evil. He commanded us in verse 3 that we are to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all, he said, handed down to the saints. That means that we're in the battle. We are in a dangerous battle. We are to confront error with truth. Now, as Jude closes his letter in these last two verses, verses 24 and 25, he tells us why we can march into such a fierce battle without any fear and with great confidence, with great boldness, that we will be triumphant. Why is that? Let me read to you verses 24 and 25. He says, Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only wise God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. These final words by Jude are not really instructive as much as they are a praise. They are what we call a doxology. A doxology are words of heartfelt adoration. It's, it's an expression of, of praise to God. These words are sometimes, these specific words in Jude, are sometimes recited in churches by pastors as at the close of a service, Often a pastor will recite these words as an official and somewhat liturgical way of dismissing the congregation. Instead of doing what I usually do, thank you for coming, you're dismissed, they would read these words. But I want you to know, Jude didn't pen these words as a mere formality to close a service. I'm not saying that's wrong, but that's not the intent of these words. This is his praise to God. His praise for his power in protecting us from ever abandoning the gospel of Christ and falling into the heresies that would damn us to hell. That is the essence of this praise. It is most fitting that Jude closes his letter by ascribing such high praise to God because what he has written in this letter has led us, as we said, into a battle 
with apostates and, and false teaching and apostasy. And we need to know that there is victory in the battle. And that's exactly what these verses reveal. Because it's in these very last words of Jude that he tells us there is victory for us over apostates and apostasy. Why? Because God is able to keep us from falling. And it's because he is able to give us such victory, such protection, that we are to offer him the same high words of praise and exaltation. It is the right way to close our study of this letter, both tonight and next week, because it points us away from the errors, away from the wickedness of false teachers to the great truths about God's sovereign power and his mercy in our lives. As someone has put it concerning this doxology, it lifts the thoughts from earthly conflicts, which is really what this letter has been about. It lifts the thoughts from earthly conflicts with which the author has been compelled to busy himself up to the heavenly realms where God is enthroned amidst eternal might and honor. So what he's saying, and very accurately so, is that we've been constantly looking at problems and conflicts and issues and the wickedness of false teachers. In these final two verses, our hearts and minds are turned away from all of that and we look up to God and we see his sovereign power, we see his mercy, we see his strength, we see how capable he is and we give him praise. So as we come to these closing words of this letter, we see that Jude has expressed, here's the structure, I'll give you the overall structure. He has expressed this doxology along three basic lines of thought. First, he tells us why we are to give such praise to God because God is so capable. That's what he means when he says he is able to keep you from stumbling or to keep you from falling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. He is able to do that. Now, tonight we're going to see what that means. But but the first thing Jude says, is we praise him because he's able, he's capable, he's powerful. Then he then Jude specifically identifies the one to whom we give our praise. He doesn't actually tell us who we are praising, although we certainly know who we're praising. He doesn't tell us in verse 24. He tells us in verse 25, he identifies the one we give praise to as the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And finally, Jude tells us that we should praise God for having such magnificent attributes. What attributes? Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. He's had them before all time. He has them now. He will have them forever. Now, this is the basic structure of this doxology, but I really believe these precious truths cannot be reduced to a neat package of a simple outline for us to follow. These words are spiritually breathtaking, spiritually breathtaking, because they reveal truths about God that will cause you to fall on your knees and to absolutely adore him. So what does this doxology Reveal about God. Well, tonight we want to focus only on verse 24 and we, and we see why Jude calls us to offer such praise to God as he reveals that we should praise God because he has the ability to keep us from falling. Verse 24 begins this way. Now to him who is able. Jude begins his doxology by directing us, as I said, first to God's ability. He tells us, He's able. He doesn't identify him yet. He just says he's able. 
He'll identify him, as I said, in verse 25. But in these opening words, he simply tells us that the one that we praise is omnipotent. He's able. He's powerful. He's able to do something. He is omnipotent. So what is he able to do that we should offer him such praise? He is able, Jude says, to keep us from stumbling. Now, what does he mean by this? He certainly doesn't mean that we will never sin again. He doesn't mean that we will never stumble, never fall into sin. That, that would be contrary to the rest of Scripture. The Apostle John said that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So Jude can't be saying we never sin. Even, even the great Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, that he sins and the things that he wants to do, he doesn't do. The things he doesn't want to do, he, he does. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Not I was, but I am the chief of sinners. So Jude can't possibly be talking about a perfection that God is working in our lives so that we never, ever stumble into sin. So we dismiss that. That would contradict Scripture. No, what Jude is saying, note this, is that God is able to protect you from ever stumbling and falling into apostasy in the sense that you would reject Jesus Christ and lose your salvation. The Greek word that is translated keep means to guard. Guard in the sense of protecting and it carries with it the thought of safety. There is a safety that... that God protects us with. There is a preservation. That's another thought here. Safety, preservation. Even when we are under attack. Now, folks, what this means in a practical sense is that even when we come under attack by false teachers, satanic doctrines, as we're exposed to their errors, and and even if we feel tempted and sometimes we are confused about what is right and wrong, God is able to protect us from ever permanently walking away from Jesus Christ and abandoning the faith for apostasy. In other words, if you're a true child of God, you will never, ever become an apostate. Why? Because God won't let you. God won't let you. He will powerfully watch over you, and this is the thought here, and protect you from forsaking the truth. He is able to do that, and he does do that. This is precisely what Peter was talking about in 1 Peter chapter 1. Notice just a, a few books back. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have been saved now, Peter says, we will obtain to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Notice this, this salvation, he says, who are protected, those who are saved are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God protects us. We are protected by God's power so that our salvation will never be lost. That is, in essence, what Jude is saying. Now, this doesn't mean that someone who professes faith in Christ and all they do is profess faith in Christ, but they're not really saved, won't fall away. Sometimes we hear about people who claimed to know Christ, but they do fall away. So what do we say about that? Well, they never really were saved to begin with. First John tells us about that. First John chapter two, 
verse 19. And this ought to help you because there are people who get confused. Well, this person I know claimed to know Christ, even active in the church, but fell away. Well, they never were saved. Because 1 John 2.19 says they went out from us, but they were not really of us, meaning that they were not truly born again. For if they had been of us, if they had really been born again, John says, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. They have never really been born again. So we understand that just a mere profession does not mean you have possession. But true believers will never fall away. Also keep in mind, this, this uh, doesn't mean that we will never stumble at, at times in the sense of uh, never being confused over doctrine. doesn't mean that we can't have doubts about Christianity or waver a little bit. Nor does it mean that a true believer for a while will never get involved in a false doctrine or a cult. That, that does happen to true believers at times, but they won't stay there. What this does mean is that a true Christian will never, even if he, even if he wavers at times, even if he joins a cult for a, a little while because he's confused, this does mean that a true Christian will never ultimately reject Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace. And the reason that a true believer won't ultimately and permanently reject Jesus Christ and walk away from the gospel forever has nothing to do with us, but it has everything to do with God because he is able to keep you from falling away. You are kept by the power of God so that you cannot walk away from Christ, nor do you want to walk away from Christ. This is a tremendous truth, and it ought to give you great boldness and confidence when you are exposed to error or you engage someone who's in a false religious system, in an evangelistic conversation. You don't need to be afraid as if they're going to so confuse you that you are going to join them. You don't need to be afraid because you are safe in God's omnipotent, protective care. That is precisely what Jude is saying. To him who is able to keep you from falling, he guards you from falling, you will not fall away. This is exactly why we can contend for the faith and evangelize people in cults and false religions without any fear because we have God's promise that that we will never, ever abandon the gospel and lose our salvation. He is holding on to us. It has nothing to do with us holding on to him. That's why Jude, notice, goes on to say that in keeping us from stumbling in the sense that we will never lose our salvation, God, he says, is the one who will Make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless. What an incredible truth. He will make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless. No wonder Jude praises God and calls us to join him in praise. He's saying that our God is so powerful that he assures us that someday... We, because we will not fall away, we will stand in his glorious presence completely blameless. Completely blameless. I know you want to say amen, but you're stunned. I know that. Completely blameless. Meaning that every Christian is going to make it to glory. Every Christian. Why? One reason. One reason alone. Because of Christ's 
imputed righteousness to us. That's what justification means. God imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us so that we're not only forgiven, but we are declared righteous, though we indeed are sinful in ourselves. We are legally righteous. It's only because of Christ's imputed righteousness that we will be able to stand in God's presence without any stain or blemish on our record. That's grace. Realize the magnitude of this statement by Jude. He's telling us that even though we are sinners, when we die, we will enter into the presence of God in heaven. Why? Because Christ died for our sins, and by his mercy we have received divine forgiveness and Christ's imputed righteousness, and therefore we will stand in the presence of this perfectly holy God, absolutely blameless meaning that we will stand before him without any spiritual defects in our lives. No sinful blemish. This very word blameless, by the way, is the same word that is used to describe Jesus. Peter uses it in 1 Peter 1.19, referring to Jesus as a lamb unblemished. God looks upon us as if we are as unblemished as his own perfect son. That's imputed righteousness. The writer to the Hebrews uses this same word as well. Speaking of Christ offering himself to God as our sacrifice, he says, Hebrews 9, 14, without blemish. He is a sacrifice without blemish. We are without blemish. Listen, if you're a believer in Christ, then you don't ever have to fear dying. You don't ever have to fear death because you will stand in God's presence without any sinful defects. This is why the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians about Christ presenting them faultless before God. This this great verse in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot no wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's what Jude is telling us. He's able to do that. He's able to do that. It's the same thing that Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11:2, that he said, as your spiritual father, I will play a role in presenting you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, this is an amazing Amazing truth that ought to solicit great praise to God because you and I don't ever need to be concerned what it will be like to stand before a holy God on the day of judgment. Even though he's perfect, he's perfectly holy, he knows all about the sinful things you and I have done, what you and I have thought during our lives on earth. We will stand before him without any stain on our record because our sins already have been judged in Christ and God has imputed Christ's righteousness to us. That's why Jude tells us at the end of verse 24, notice this, that we will stand in the presence of his glory blameless. And notice he adds with great joy, great joy. Even though there are some people who are absolutely terrified But the thought of dying and standing before God, because these are unbelievers, because they know that they're not ready to do that. As a Christian, that's not 
our experience. That's not the way we ought to think. That's not what's going to be our experience. Because being in God's presence for us is going to be the most exhilarating experience you have ever had. Jude says that when we stand in the presence of God, we will be filled with an overwhelming sense of joy. Do you realize that joy is one of the great distinguishing marks and expressions of heaven? We don't often think about that. But heaven is filled with joy. Not only will we be joyful on that day, but do you know that Jesus will be joyful when he sees us? Let me show you this. Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus will be joyful when we stand before him. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us in verse 1 that we that the Christian life is like a marathon race, a race of endurance, and we are to trust the Lord as we go through the difficulties of life. Then the writer says in verse 2, we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the great example of faith, he tells us, in his ministry and, and life as a, as a human, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Notice this, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The cross was not a joyful thing for the Lord. In fact, the writer goes on to say he despised the shame. He despised the shame of the cross, but he endured it because, as he said, for the joy set before him. Jesus anticipated the joy of what was to come. He endured the cross because of the joy that would be his in the future. Part of that joy is having us in his presence. Heaven is going to be lit up with joy. That's why in Matthew chapter 25, verse 23, it indicates that the Lord will say to us when we arrive in heaven, enter into what? The joy of your master. Heaven is a joyful place. We will be in the presence of our Lord with great joy because of his mercy and grace and because we have nothing to dread, nothing to fear, though he is perfectly holy, he is almighty, he is omnipotent, but he has given us salvation, he has kept us saved, and he has brought us home to heaven. We have Christ's imputed righteousness upon us, and we will be beaming when we are in glory, and he will be beaming as well. Now, wonder Jude tells us to offer our praise to God in spite of the many dangers that that we face living in such a, a sinful world where false teachers try to lure us away from Jesus and and the gospel. We're given a promise by God that we are going to make it to heaven. He will protect us from losing our salvation. And when we die, we will stand before him without any spiritual blemish and with great joy. No, no wonder Jude ends his letter like this. But listen, if you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, then this will not be your experience. You will stand before him as a condemned sinner, stand before the great judge of the universe. So while you have opportunity, come to Christ before it's too late. But for those of us who know him, I want to close our service tonight by just spending some time in prayer and praise to him for his keeping power. So join me, will you? Lord, it is impossible to read this verse and to just close a service like this without pausing to praise you. 
Lord, thank you. Thank you for in this world of dangers, trials, tribulations, we we know that we will be triumphant. We know that when we are lying upon our deathbed, that the great future lies ahead of us, a great future of being with you, because you are able to keep us from stumbling. Lord, thank you for that. If it was up to us, we would have long ago forsaken you. If it was up to us, we would have long ago walked away from Christ and and said, "It's, it's too hard, can't do this. But you're the one who sustains us. You began a good work in us, and you will continue that good work until the day we stand before you. I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for not only electing us in eternity past, saving us at some point as you broke into our lives, but, but keeping us by your power so that we will never stumble and fall away from Christ. It's only your mercy, Lord, and I know that we will see that more clearly when we stand before you. Right now, we take it by faith. We believe it because your word says it. Then we'll know more. But Lord, thank you. Thank you that you will make us stand in your presence, your glorious presence. And we will be joyful. Lord, I thank you. Uh, We anticipate that day that we stand before you in awe and wonder and the mystery of seeing you and yet knowing you intimately beaming from ear to ear, joyful because of Christ's marvelous work in our lives. What a privileged people we are. Lord, help us to give you the adoration that you deserve. Also, we pray that you will help us to take these truths to heart. May these truths grip our hearts so that we'll not be afraid of false religion, not be afraid of people who want to lead us astray, not be afraid when we can't even answer them. And we're not sure of the answer, but may we never be intimidated, never be fearful, never be overly confused because you're able to keep us from stumbling. Lord, thank you that someday you'll bring us home. In the meantime, we count upon your grace and your strength as we go through this life. We pray this all with praise, adoration, to the one who is exalted above all, even Jesus our Lord and Savior. Amen.